Welcome to the Library of Mistakes, changing the world one mistake at a time. Welcome to the Library of Mistakes. I'm Russell Napier, the keeper of the library, a beautifully designed building in Edinburgh, housing more than 4,000 books about the mistakes that the world keeps repeating, particularly in finance and business. Visit libraryofmistakes.com to find out more. And for those keen to guard against mistakes, we also run a course called A Practical History of Financial Markets, available both in person in London and Edinburgh or online for wherever you are in the world. To find out more about the course, please see the link in the podcast show notes. Well, everybody, welcome. I'm delighted today to welcome Joyce Malakis and Chris Wright, authors of The Millionaire's Factory, the inside story of how Macquarie Bank became a global giant. It's an incredible story of an institution, but actually it's much more than that because it's a story of a period in history from 1974 to current, a period when the world changed, when finance changed. Uh, Something I write about in my day job, this rise in leverage, this change for deregulation. But actually, it's much more interesting when you tell it through the history of an institution than you tell it through macro statistics. And that's why I thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. And for anybody who wants to read a book about the transformation of finance in the last 30 years, this is it, because... uh, it's kind of up close and personal, and you see it in real life. And if you're a practitioner, you realize the consequences of it. Now, the ultimate consequence of this is that Macquarie Bank, the bank that many of you may not have heard of, has become uh, omnipresent. It's probably going a bit too far. But I'll ask Chris and, uh, and, and Joyce to explain where this company is today, because it's in surprising places, uh, way, way far beyond Australia. So, uh, which of you would like to explain where Macquarie is today and what it's what it's up to? Uh, well, maybe I'll have a go at the international picture. And uh, Joyce uh, obviously is based in Sydney. She knows very much the homegrown story. I'm based in Singapore and uh, covered much of the international picture for us. The short answer to where Macquarie is, it is everywhere. And it's not always visible that it's everywhere, but uh, you will be surprised almost anywhere where you are in the world just how much your life probably crosses over with an asset that Macquarie either owns or has owned. Uh, There was a spell where I took a trip across the United States to illustrate the point, and uh, I drove pretty much in a straight line from uh, the bottom, from Louisiana up to the Canadian border. And the point of it was, even in the real middle of America, the bit that we don't really know so much about, you couldn't go 100 miles without tripping over something that Macquarie owns or has owned or, or probably will at some stage. That can be highways, that might be fiber optic cable network in Missouri, it might be a tunnel connecting Detroit to Canada, it might be freight terminals, it might be a commodities business in Houston. And you could really apply the same exercise anywhere else in the world. Certainly in the UK, you could do it and you'll find the same thing, which is that it's uh, it's spotted niches and assets and places uh, everywhere you can think of and found a way to exploit them. I'll just jump in there. Chris explains it really well. Um, When you think about it, Macquarie's in 33 or 34 markets around the world. They have 20,000 or uh, more than 20,000 now staff in markets all around the world. Uh, 71% of their income comes from outside Australia with the Americas actually making up the the biggest chunk. So, you know, going from a small uh, offshoot of a UK merchant bank, Hill Samuel, back in 1969, to this sort of huge beast uh, in 33, 34 markets around the world. It, it has come a long way in, in a very short space of time. 
it was, you say, a huge base from tiny, tiny beginnings, but tiny beginnings in a very regulated Australian market, a very regulated global market, actually. And uh, they were at the forefront of the changes in that, seizing opportunities as they came through through deregulation. One of the first was this Cash Management Trust, which appears in 1980. People listening today will find it bizarre that you couldn't have a Cash Management Trust before that. So maybe explain what this was, why it was new, because most people just take these things for granted now. And how it helped change Macquarie? Macquarie sort of thought of, they thought there was a niche in the market that wasn't being served where there was, uh, they weren't necessarily a bank by this stage, but they were sort of arbitraging the money markets and the deposit markets and filling what they thought was a demand. And they looked overseas and Merrill Lynch was doing something similar. And they thought, you know, there is demand here for this product. And as soon as they sort of, figured it out, timed when to launch it in terms of where we were in the interest rate cycle. The demand really overwhelmed them in terms of the, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that sort of started pouring through over the next few years. Uh, it, it was um, an idea that they sort of acted on reasonably quickly. Uh, again, this sort of nimble approach to this is something that people want, it's something that we can provide. Um, this time they had a little bit of help from uh, offshore in terms of replicating what was being done in the US, uh, but it certainly has been a, a standout product for them over the years. Yeah, this was a product that allowed uh, depositors to get a higher yield by buying bank paper effectively through the trust and actually putting money on deposit. So it's one of those first signs of, of deregulation. And Macquarie, of course, following what was happening in the US, jumped in, seized, seized the opportunity. Uh, other opportunities are to come in, in the history of, of deregulation, particularly in terms of becoming a bank. Uh, really, the firm faced an existential crisis on bank deregulation. There was a prospect that the uh, the foreign banks were going to be allowed into Australia and been a pretty cosy cocktail. Uh, and it looked like Macquarie wasn't going to be, or uh, at that stage, it was still called Hill Samuel. It was a foreign bank, but it was too small. It wasn't likely to get one of these licenses. And it really faced potentially an extinction event. <laughs> Can you explain how they very cleverly turned that to their uh, advantage and how really it brought the birth of the institution we call Macquarie? The interesting thing about this period is, as you say, it could have been the death knell of Macquarie and instead it was the making of it, which is something of a characteristic of the bank throughout its time, seizing opportunity from a places where it isn't evident at the time. So as you say, the the influx of foreign banks uh, into Australia clearly threatened to shake up a fairly cosy environment to the detriment of the local players, Uh, and particularly those who didn't have a license to do absolutely everything that they would want to do. But Macquarie observed uh, the incoming flood and thought, well, if there's a certain pretty small number of licenses going to foreign banks, it's not really going to be us, is it? Uh, we, we, we just don't have anything like the heft of any of the, the Japanese players, the British players, any of them, the Americans. And so it became clear to them that they must instead try to gain a domestic bank license. And there wasn't really much of a track record of those being issued. And even if there were, there was a significant problem in that Macquarie, given in its ownership by Hill Samuel, was just not domestic. So there followed a period of lobbying and jostling and uh, you know reinventing to try and get itself in a position where it could be considered to be a domestic bank. Uh, and that was a battle that it eventually won. Uh, Joyce, do you want to follow up, follow up on that on the on that story? It did involve a number of moving pieces. They had to figure out, firstly, how to apply for the license. They had to set up a project team. 
but also how to convince a head office that it was a good idea, that this was a good idea that they should sell down and allow Macquarie to essentially be formed as an independent institution with a banking licence in Australia. And uh, I think it took uh, some convincing, but eventually, um, you know, head office in the UK did come to the realisation that this was the way forward and it did involve um, a couple of tranches of sell down by uh, Hill Samuel uh, after uh, Macquarie became a bank. But it was a pretty seminal moment. This could have become a great big elephant trap, actually, because when you enter a period of deregulation, as most people will know, you use a lot more bank capital. Therefore, there is the possibility of a lot more bank lending. And therefore, spring forth the entrepreneurs wishing to to borrow this money in the second half of the 1980s. For those uh, people listening who don't know about it, it's one of the most extraordinary periods in Australian history, but also actually in financial history in terms of the, the type and nature of entrepreneurs that entrepreneurs may be too nice a word for some of them that came along to exploit this opportunity and here is Macquarie they're actually new in the lending business really I mean they've been buying commercial paper if you like from banks but they're new in the lending business this whole thing falls apart brilliantly put in uh, Trevor Sykes's famous book The Bold Riders and Macquarie survives that as well because they've done something different I just wanted to, to read a little bit from from the book to explain what was going on here and it's about a man called Tony Tony Berg uh, and it says, Macquarie under Berg's risk of our stewardship was carefully sidestepping dealing with or having large exposures to many of those colourful and sometimes bizarre Australian corporate characters. But Berg's position on avoiding working with some of the busiest entrepreneurs in that period was controversial and meant Macquarie was sacrificing income. So you can see the conflict in the second half of the 80s. We have this licence. We're free to get out there and land. And meanwhile, sitting within the middle of the bank, there's a gentleman who is are pursuing risk-averse policy. Now, that ultimately pays off for Macquarie, but maybe you could say a little bit about uh, Tony Berg, his role in this, uh, and, and the culture perhaps he left behind. I mean, this is a bank. It takes leverage positions and it takes credit risk. And one of the great successes of it through various cycles is to survive those cycles, which not all financial institutions, let's face it, uh, have managed to do. Well, Tony Berg was very conservative in his approach. He didn't think that that sort of debt fueled M&A era was sustainable. Um, you know, we had the Alan Bonds of the world, the Robert Holmes of courts, and Bond was big internationally as well. He wasn't um, just doing deals down here. He ended up obviously doing jail time um, when his empire crumbled. Uh, but Tony Berg sort of saw that this environment was unsustainable, you know, the banking market had been opened up. There was competition. The banks were sort of throwing money around, um, competing for, for business. Uh, he sort of thought it was worth taking a more cautious approach and that did um, at times mean that he came to blows with various uh, hot-headed investment bankers within uh, the Macquarie fold by this stage. Uh, but when Macquarie sort of rode through the crash uh, of 87, uh, his approach uh, did, uh, st- you know, stand well and, uh, you know, they were unprofitable for a couple of months, I think, around their trading operations, but they didn't have any substantial losses like some of the domestic and European banks had and bondholders had uh, in this market uh, due to what happened uh, in that period. Yeah, so Macquarie survives. It's got a banking licence, but it's still kind of a scrappy, small institution fighting against the world's great banking behemoths. Uh, And reading the book, I I would say that the goose that lays the golden egg comes along in in 1994, 
which is the Hills Motorway deal, and the opportunity that opens up for Macquarie, which is exploited over the next several decades, actually. So this also is now just commonplace. I think modern listeners just think this sort of thing happens all the time, but it was an innovative deal, and it led Macquarie to change the nature of its very business to get into effectively what are the infrastructure funds. So maybe you could explain why this was a, a different sort of a deal and then uh, how Macquarie went on to, on a global basis, use us, get into that business with their own money, with principal, with raising capital uh, and getting a bigger slice of that particular form of pie and taking it global. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly that this is a huge turning point for Macquarie. And it came out of uh, a small division in which, among the other people who made their name, but the future chief executive, Nicholas Moore, a bunch of very bright people, often with accounting backgrounds, looking for ways to add value or do something different that was actually worth charging for money money for as a, as a sort of a service. And the era of the time was just the beginning of the privatization of uh, some public assets in Australia. It was, uh, it was most common in the state of Victoria, actually, but it was in New South Wales and in Sydney that the Hills Motorway first came along, one of several motorways where the private sector was uh, invited to engage. And Macquarie, again, as you say, was quite the scrappy underdog there. It didn't really have any heft. It was running around looking for bigger people to partner with to try and get an edge in one of these deals. And One of their early discoveries was that traditional advisory role in its own right was fine, but that wasn't what was really making all of the money. Uh, One of their partners on Hills Motorway was a pretty small group called Abbey Group, which was fundamentally about paving the actual tarmac of the motorways and, uh, and broader construction. And they realized that the way the deal was structured was such that that was the group that had made the most money from it. And the other thing they realized was that these things had typically been built on debt, and no one had ever really thought there was any particular value to be equity related to a toll road. Macquarie engineered a structure whereby there was equity ascribed to that, uh, which subsequently led to like listed versions of public assets, motorways, and then funds based on them. Once they did all of that, they began to develop a model in which they weren't just there to advise and put a deal together. They were there to put their own capital in or to gather other investors alongside them to put that money in. Uh, and they created really very lucrative structures through which the more embedded they were in uh, in the nuts and bolts of a deal, there were more and more ways that they could get a fee, get a return, uh, whether it was, you know, it might be anything from an FX hedge to the standard advisory fee to uh, just being exposed to the tolls as they came in over a period of time. And they refined this very, very quickly. They were advantaged somewhat in Australia by a tax code, which was beneficial in order to um, try and crowd uh, private capital into infrastructure. And they, I think it's fair to say, pushed that tax code to within an inch of its life while still staying legal. Uh, and it was a, a characteristic of Macquarie. They, they would just find every possible uh, opportunity in something and uh, find a way of making money from it. And once they figured that out, the next uh, great transformation was to think, well, we could put a load of these infrastructure assets into a fund. We could wrap them all together. We could list that fund. Retail can participate in that fund. And then the big uh, emerging superannuation or pension industry of Australia was looking for long-term assets so they can invest in these funds. And before you knew it, almost out of nowhere, there was this empire being built. It started on Australia, but it was global. There were in toll roads in Canada, there were in bridges in South Korea. Uh, there were in assets all over the world. And right up until the global financial crisis, 
uh, a period of about 15 years or so, uh, which is characterized by this great innovation uh, and growth as they just rode this wave uh, of the need for uh, privately funded infrastructure. The word fees came up there, and uh, you can't talk about Macquarie without talking about the issue of fees, and your book doesn't shirk from doing that. So I wanted to read something on fees. This is slightly later in the history of the company. It relates to those infrastructure uh, projects in Canada uh, and the sort of pushback from some of the Canadian pension funds that that, that came. Uh, And these are quotes from a a Canadian asset allocator. Uh, But at a deeper level, there were the fees. These things have a two and twenty kind of structure in terms of fees," said the Beaver, and he is a uh, asset allocator in Canada. But what was not so clear was that Macquarie had a number of ways they could earn additional income from these funds. They became the champions of continuous regearing, meaning that over time, as the valuations of some of these assets went up, they would put additional leverage on to bring it back to where it was in the beginning. In principle, there was nothing wrong with that, except that they did it in a way that was particularly beneficial to Macquarie in terms of additional services that were being provided. And it was not always clear that they were being being provided at market rates. There were layers of fees which we didn't like. I don't think they were transparent about it, and related parties was an issue also. So many years ago, when I was a young fund manager, I looked at a company called Land Lease, which was a great Australian company, and it seemed to have, let us just say, quite a few fees involved in managing assets. So uh, uh, you tackle it in the book. Uh, What would you like to say about the subject of of the fees which you raise in a Canadian uh, context, but actually were raised across the board in terms of the various funds that Macquarie was was launching, and effectively for institutional investors and, and retail investors, actually, as, as we'll discover later. Yeah, I'll just uh, say something about Macquarie's listed uh, funds model, which had to be unpicked uh, because of this. Um, investors were sort of wondering, well, what are we paying for? We've got assets. We're paying Macquarie to manage them. Um, this sort of layer upon layer of fees. Um, you know, they've potentially stacked the board with their people. Um, what is the benefit of this listed entity? Um, and as that sort of investor awakening, if you like, uh, became reality and, and these sorts of questions like what you just read um, were being raised, uh, the model sort of uh, became untenable um, in a sense because it had uh, become unpopular with investors and they weren't seeing the value. They weren't Macquarie had structured it, structured them in a, in a complicated way where you had the management fees, you had other fees, the transparency was lacking and they couldn't explain it uh, very well. And, and that's what, uh, what you, the, the essence of what you read out as well. And that also became a problem in other markets as they took their model offshore. Chris can go a little bit more into the um, Canadian example. Yeah, there were two specific problems with the fee structures. One, uh, as you outlined of Leo de Beaver from, uh, um, well, various places, but most obviously Ontario teachers, was that, uh, you know, instos aren't stupid. Instos know uh, when there's just too many fees being taken uh, for this to be workable. And they become irritated if they're trying to build really long-term partnerships and they just feel like every scrap of you know, every every final cent has been swept off the table where it can be. They, they, they would rather build longer-term relationships. And over time, there's been an evolution. These days, Ontario teachers and Macquarie still work together, but they will go in together into the same asset. Macquarie's not in charge anymore. It's a different structure. So they both benefit, but in a slightly different way. The other fundamental problem was that particularly in the years running up to the global financial crisis, 
so much of these infrastructure funds was being marketed very much at retail and very often in complicated structures, which I think it's fair to say, looking back, were never truly appropriate. Uh, installment structures in which you might pay for the same uh, security in two or three installments, which is just fine if everything's rising, but it's a terrible idea if it's sinking. Uh, and it, it, it applied a number of times of key uh, Australian assets. And, you know, retail investors don't behave like institutional investors. You know, they head for the exit uh, far more quickly than an insto with a 10 or 15 year time horizon will. And I think quite a lot of people got hurt uh, around the time of the financial crisis by their exposure uh, to Macquarie funds, whose, whose uh, values then declined very quickly as people exited. And uh, a lot lot of people felt that perhaps they should never have been in there in the first place. And a massive change took place around the financial crisis. No new listed funds were launched after that time. From then on, they were all private funds, just institutional money, which was more appropriate, smarter. uh, And actually, most of Macquarie's reputational issues, I would say, uh, diminished considerably from about 2008 onwards for that very good reason of a better alignment of uh, risk and people who understand risk. Yeah, within that quote was also the issue of the regearing of assets. So I mentioned at the beginning that the story of Macquarie is the story of, a, of an era, and it's an era of ever higher debt levels. So if you add debt, because asset prices are going up, and of course, at the same time, interest rates are coming down, this is a tremendous tailwind, not just for Macquarie, but for all sorts of institutions all over the world, such as private equity. Uh, I think we all realize that interest rates are not going down anymore. So to bring us a little bit more up to date before we go back into the history, how are these structures faring now that we have rising rates after 40 years of falling rates? Because I I think the clearest example of the problem of all of this, uh, even if it's in Macquarie's aftermath rather than its current uh, asset ownership, is probably being illustrated in uh, the UK water utility sector right now. Uh, Thames Water is one of the most pivotal deals Macquarie was ever involved in, and also subject to just the, the greatest divergence of opinion between Macquarie and you know Britain as to uh, whether that was a good or a bad uh, set of corporate behaviour around that asset. Uh, Macquarie came into uh, Thames Water. They did uh, fix a lot of leaks. It's fair to say that. But what they also did was they loaded debt into that place. Uh, and then they sold it on to, well, among others, a Q8 investment authority. Now, in a time when money is basically free, which was obviously the case for more than a decade, you can live with that. But when suddenly interest rates go through the reef, you can't live with that anymore. And some chickens are coming home to roost, I think, across a whole range of water utilities and all of the structure that's been built up. As you say, not just Macquarie, private equities in there as well. There's all sorts of different things about leveraged debt. Um, but Macquarie is perhaps the most be poster child for that approach. And now it's a problem. Uh, Macquarie does still own water assets in the UK, and it's now having to pump more money in them just to you know, keeping the float, so to speak, even to pay back the interest. Uh, but I, I think it really is now becoming apparent what the problem is of loading particularly public assets uh, with debt. I suppose the other side of that is, uh, Russell, the ability to sell assets into a market like this. Um, it's obviously more difficult for Macquarie to get the sorts of prices that investors might want. They've got all these infrastructure funds, whether they're in 
the European series of infrastructure funds, the American series of infrastructure funds, but then they've also got assets that are sitting on their own balance sheet. So, you know, whilst they do have longer, long-term uh, time horizons and they can hold assets for longer than, you, you say, sort of three to five private equity year cycle of buy, buying in and selling out, um, Macquarie do still have to sell and crystallise returns for investors. So obviously in this sort of environment that be- can become more difficult. So that's what they're navigating at the moment and they did um, sort of warn of a, a more difficult operating climate in the year to March 31-24. So we'll see how they fare, um, you know, in this sort of environment when realising assets becomes a lot more difficult. It is perhaps fair to point something else out, which is that, you know, we're speaking chiefly of infrastructure here, and that's natural. It's the most visible of their businesses. uh, And uh, for much of the last 20 years, has been the largest part of it. But the other part of Macquarie is that it is always at least a dozen different things at once. And there will be other uh, engines within the group which thrive very nicely in high interest rate environments. I mean, they do have a classic standard banking business, at least in Australia. Uh, which uh, which does just fine now. There are you know elements of of its fund management business which are which are well exposed to this, particularly in the United States, and its commodities business has been an absolute star performer for the last two or three years, uh, and that clearly is is not unrelated to the inflationary environment around energy prices. So Macquarie is very skilled at being a winner in any operating environment. And if there's one bit of the business that's under pressure, they are very, very unromantic about pushing it to one side and then going into the next new thing. Yeah, that's one of the, the things that jumps out from your book is when you say pushing it aside, actually selling the business as well. Yeah, and just or, or just shutting that, it down, yeah. Or, or shutting it down. So it's really a stable of businesses. Uh, there's a little saying for that in the book. I can't remember exactly what it is. It's to do with... Uh, is it freedom under constraint? Can you remind me of the mantra that's permeated freedom. the business for all those years? Freedom within boundaries was one of their mottos. I think it's now um, accountability, opportunity and integrity. So they have uh, loose tight was another um, iteration of that, Russell. <laughs> freedom within boundaries sounds like it comes straight from George Orwell. But anyway, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll move on. We'll go, we'll go back a little bit to the... Uh, the chronology of all this, because it seems that every, and this is why the book is so interesting, it seems that every major turning point in global history, Macquarie is there. Now, it's there as a small player. It's not a good, but it is there. So 1998, we have the Asian financial crisis. We have the bankruptcy of Russia, and we have problems at, at Bankers Trust, a major opportunity presents. It actually uh, means that Macquarie doubles in size very, very quickly. Uh, can you explain how the company was able to to take advantage of this opportunity and how it really sort of takes them up into the, to, to the next level. Sure. Well, uh, do you want to take that choice? Or, or? I'll just quickly note that they they did they were aware that BT uh, the market side of BT in this down in Australia was their biggest competitor. They were watching closely what was happening overseas. Uh, they knew that at some point there would be a sale, and they timed it very well in terms of doubling the size of their headcount uh, in this part of the world. But it was. Uh, they did still sort of time it well in terms of waiting for the price for the price they wanted because they knew they'd have to pay retention uh, payments to to keep the key people. Um, Chris, I don't know if there's anything you want, want to add there, but that was a, a landmark transaction in terms of um, those early years at Macquarie. Yeah, the, 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 the geopolitics around it were interesting. I mean, the whole reason that business came on the market in the first place was really because BT Alex Brown got into trouble in Russia. 
And it seems a very long way away from that to Macquarie being able to buy its main competitor in Australia, but it's the you know butterfly wing thing. Uh, BT had to sell uh, large parts of itself. Deutsche stepped in. Deutsche wanted certain parts of its Australian business, but not others. And all of a sudden, this terrific asset is there. And they bided their time. It really didn't cost them very much considering the scope of what that business brought to them. Uh, because, you know, they were two very interesting and in some ways similar institutions, BT Australia and, uh, and Macquarie. You know, they eyed each other as, as competitors. There was a real love-hate thing there. Uh, but respect, too. And the ability to acquire your biggest competitor in your own domestic market for, I think it was $100 million, if I remember correctly, uh, although, as Joyce says, other uh, peripheral considerations around employee retainment, that's an extraordinary deal, and it really did give them heft. And also, I think it's fair to say, a rather more international worldview. You know, BT by its nature, having been, uh, you know, the Sydney end of a global operation, had a worldview which was unfamiliar to many Macquarie insiders at the time. And I think it helped them greatly with their international expansion. A lot of those BT people ended up running international businesses or country offices. Uh, yeah, a landmark for Macquarie, no question. Yeah, so it's a company that benefits from deregulation from its earliest days. And then the volatility that comes with that deregulation, it's, it, it manages it very well. It, it doesn't make overexpo- get overexposed in the late 1980s. It seizes this opportunity with Bankers Trust. And, of course, the biggest challenge of all then comes in terms of the great financial crisis where across the world banks are struggling with solvency. That's a nice euphemism. Uh, but there is also an advantage to being a bank, which is that you get to borrow from the central bank. Now, some of the American uh, non-banks rushed to become banks to, to benefit from this. Uh, Macquarie already, of course, had its banking license way back from, from 1985. But the ability to access uh, support from, I suppose, the government as well as the central bank in a period of distress, though not as much distress in Australia as elsewhere, but distress nonetheless, was clearly a controversial thing. So could you talk us through how the company survived the GFC. It was a highly leveraged uh, operation. I think many people thought it would find itself in in significant trouble, but actually it weathered that storm uh, well. But to what extent did it weather that storm due to the support of the authorities or was that once again the sort of the legacy that Tony Berg had left of being being cautious on the, on the loan? But what, what was the reason that Macquarie weathered that so well and came out of it actually significantly stronger? I think um, it was a number of reasons, really. They did act decisively to, you know, they stopped lending, uh, their banks stopped lending very quickly. They were quick to divest of assets. But basically, you know, when you had the world financial system melting down, uh, a bank uh, potentially on its knees almost every second day, um, it's not the sort of environment that you, that counterparty risk, you you know, obviously... um, down in this part of the world, Macquarie's uh, peers, Babcock and Brown and Alco, had collapsed. So I think, uh, although they would argue they weren't on their knees, um, had it not have been for our government guarantee and deposit guarantee in Australia and the fact that uh, there was a, a sense of calm uh, that was brought by those key decisions, a short selling ban as well, key um, in this market as well as in global markets. Um, I think it was a combination of, you know, that conservatism that sort of, again, and the ability to act quickly uh, when things go wrong and to sort of cut businesses loose, uh, divest when it when you have to, uh, that really helped them. But also 
the broader government environment and the fact that they had retained that banking license. They now have a, they had just moved to a non-operating holding company structure, but the bank was still there, obviously, within the structure. So in a sense, they still had access to the government guarantee and the deposit guarantee for their depositors. So that, that was a, a, an amazing um, boost to Macquarie at a time when their stock price was down at $20 and, you know, the world was, uh, the financial world was in a world of hurt uh, around, you know, banks were collapsing around the world. Yeah, I think that's very true. The conservatism around the balance sheet was enormously important. And Nicholas Moore, who had the extraordinary ill fortune to become chief executive pretty much the minute the global financial crisis hit, I mean, just an incredible environment to arrive at the top in. He will insist forever that the way the bank was set up, even if no dollar came in again, if all the assets and liabilities ran down, they would still be absolutely fine. But it's always occurred to me that there's a disconnect between practical uh, you know, process and ideas and just what happens when emotions are as heightened as they were during the global financial crisis. You know, a bank going under could actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy, even if it's a perfectly good bank. Uh, because as soon as people get wind of the rumor mill that something's wrong and then they refuse to be a counterparty, then you're in terrible trouble. So we'll never quite know. Uh, but it's unquestionably true that the government guarantee sort of put a floor under things. Actually, Macquarie's share price low came later than that. It was about five months later than that. So they weren't out of the woods with the government guarantee, but it certainly helped. And if there was a turning point, it was very strange, actually. The lowest point of Macquarie's share price through that time, what bumped it up again was nothing to do with Macquarie or Australia. It was something that City said in New York Something positive City said to the market, and that proved to be the low. From then on, it went up. Then they had a huge fundraising, uh, which kind of drew a line under any suggestion that Macquarie might be in trouble. What, what I'd add to all of this is that while they were apparently on the brink, at exactly the same time, they're still out there acquiring. They're still finding other troubled businesses. They are not wasting a good crisis. Uh, it's so brazen and so confident in a way. Uh, Delaware Investments is, is one example that came from that time, a big asset management business based out of Philadelphia. Bigger still was Constellation Energy, uh, which is now the beating heart of that commodities business that has served them so well recently. Both troubled assets and the GFC being bought by a bank that everyone else thinks is in terrible trouble. That really tells you something, I think. Yeah, that was that was amazing to be on the front foot at a time when just about everybody else was on the back foot. And I, I did sort of have a confidence in the balance sheet to get out and, and, and do that. Uh, now, you can't be in the infrastructure business without courting controversy. Uh, and I, I want to talk about Sydney Airport. Uh, and I want to talk about it really in terms of the image that Australians now have of Macquarie. We've dealt with one controversy, which is you know how they survived the GFC. Uh, there's Sydney Airport as well. It is a great global Australian success story, but it has, how do Australians feel about it? And how does and how does the Sydney airport story play into how Australians feel about this very successful company? Well, I think the Sydney airport story does characterise the relationship well. It's sort of a, a love-hate relationship is one of the, the best ways to describe it, I suppose. And But the Sydney airport um, saga, if you like, this sort of financial behemoth coming in and taking over a, a very important 
gateway to Australia, you know, the, the busiest airport in the country, uh, introducing fees for taxi drivers, uh, causing controversy around landing spots for Virgin at the time. Richard Branson saying, you know, greedy, greedy bank, uh, what are you doing? Uh, you know, various billboards with uh, <laughs> saying things of, about the greed of bankers. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, Australians have that sort of relationship with banks anyway, as do um, customers of banks in many markets. Uh, but I think the, the infrastructure slant made it a lot more personal because people do have a sense that this is our airport. Why is it being privatised? What are they doing to it? Is what, what does it mean for us? Is it doesn't mean that I'm going to have to pay more for my suitcase to to get a trolley for my suitcase? And initially, it did. There was an uproar around taxi drivers protesting around new levies and fees and. Um, and also, I suppose a, a little bit of it is um, that tall poppy syndrome as well. Um, but on the other side of that, Russell, um, Australia has very few companies that have done well on an international stage. Um, our big banks have retreated from overseas. NAB sold its UK assets. ANZ still has a reasonable presence in Asia. Um, Macquarie's one of very, very few. BHP, obviously, another uh, Rio that have done well overseas, um, but Macquarie has uh, has done that in a very short space of time. I think we're going to end. We're really at the beginning with the name because we are a financial history podcast based in Scotland, and the name and something called the Holy Dollar are uh, important things in financial history. I think so. Why don't you just explain to our listeners about the name, the Holy Dollar, the connection with Scotland? And, uh, and and this is a name they're probably likely to be more familiar with going forward. So it'd be useful if they knew where it came from. Well, what was then Hill Samuel Australia was they were trying to figure out what sort of name would sort of best suit them in this new world of being a bank, going out, sort of decoupling from the from the uh, from the Brits. Uh, and they thought they, initially they they thought, oh, explorers, Australian explorers, let's figure out who we can find that that you know came across a lake or a, a, a dividing range of mountains that uh, that we can name ourselves after. And um, they they sort of did their due diligence there and figured out that a lot of these explorers had either died in the desert or uh, had come across some other untimely sort of death or, or controversy and it didn't really suit them. But when they sort of looked at uh, Governor Lachlan Macquarie, uh, he had done some innovative things uh, here in New South Wales. Uh, there was an issue around a shortage of the physical currency uh, and he sort of came up with the idea to punch a hole in the currency to be able to give us two um two forms of currency. It was the dump and the, Chris helped me out here, the... Yeah, so the holy dollar was the name of the outer coin and then the dump was the centrepiece. Yeah, so it was a, it was a quite ingenious thing because the combined value was actually higher than the original dollar they'd done us, which was rather a Macquarie thing to do, I think, uh, to, you know, just punch a hole in something and suddenly it's more valuable than it was before. There's a, there's a message in there somewhere, I think. So he had been quite innovative around that and they thought, well, innovation... You know, that's what we want to be known for, uh, financial innovation. Uh, he was obviously the governor. He had done a lot for the settlement here uh, and uh, it kind of ticked a lot of the boxes. In terms of the, the UK uh, connection, I'll throw that one over to Chris. 
proved to be a very fitting name for them, I think, as they grew. And it, it, it made a big difference having a name as well. Uh, they it gave them a sense of identity that they hadn't previously had as as Hill Samuel. I, I, you can really see. You can even read it from the annual reports around that time. There's just a tangible difference in confidence just from going out there in the world with this name, with this story, and with this sense of connection to, I suppose, what is really a rudimentary kind of financial engineering. Yeah, I think that's the the thing, isn't it? It's the link with financial engineering. Um, Macquarie was able to do that, as you say, uh, create value from a financial transaction. And that is what Macquarie the Bank has been able to do. But for our listeners on the Isle of Mull, this is your connection to this story, because that is where Lachlan Macquarie initially uh, initially healed from. So I hope during the, the, the course of this podcast, you've got some idea of why this is not just the story of a bank. It's the story of a, a period in history, a period of history which personally I think is probably coming to an end, a period of falling interest rates, falling inflation, globalization, deregulation. And it's the institution at the core of that that took advantage of it. And ultimately, that's a much more interesting story than the story of deregulation or the story of falling interest rates in itself. Uh, and actually much more practical for anybody who's involved in finance. This is practically how about how you go about making the key strategic decisions in, in such a period. So thank you both for writing The Millionaire's Factory. The name, I think, says the other, tells you the other bit of what you need to know about uh, Macquarie and how it uh, Hi, it's uh, employees benefited from all of this, but it's a wonderful book, a wonderful book of, of financial history. And uh, thank you for joining me and thank you for writing it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on the, on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening. The Library of Mistakes is based in Edinburgh. To explore it in person, simply visit libraryofmistakes.com, register as a reader and book your visit. It's all free. And to enjoy little nuggets from our extensive collection of books, watch videos of our talks, and keep up to date with what we're up to, do follow us on X, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Furthermore, if you'd like to learn more about the world of investment, the Library of Mistakes runs an outstanding course called The Practical History of Financial Markets. To find out more, please see the link in the show notes. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Library of Mistakes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast platform of your choice.